Ho, oh, ho, little girl. What's your name? Can I pull your beard? Uh, ho, ho, no! What do you want for Christmas? Um, I don't know. A spotted elephant, and a choo-choo with square wheels on the caboose, and a water pistol that shoots jelly, and a bird that swims, and a cowboy who rides an ostrich, and a boat that can't stay afloat. That's quite a list you got there, little girl. Most of all, I want all of my favorite geeky Christian podcasts that engage faith and pop culture to do a Christmas crossover for the holidays. Well, let me make a list, and check it twice. A Christmas crossover for 2015 will probably consist of... Strangers and Aliens at StrangersAndAliens.com Geekly Yoked at GeeklyYoked.com Helix Reviews at Facebook.com slash Helix Reviews The Spirit Blade Underground Podcast at SpiritBlade.com Darkness to Light at DarknessToLight.blogspot.com The Untold Podcast at UntoldPodcast.com Geek This at GeekThisPodcast.com And Voices in My Head at RickLeeJames.com slash Podcast Ho, ho, ho! That's it! And of course, a crossover like that would need some sort of nexus. Links to all these podcasts can be found at crossovernexus.com! Well, there you go, little girl. Anything else you want? I want an official Red Rider Carbine Action 200 Shot Range Model Air Rifle. You'll shoot your eye out, kid. Welcome to the Untold Podcast, capturing the culture's imagination through speculative fiction. I'm your host, Nathan James Norman. This episode is a part of the Crossover Nexus. I sat down with Christian singer, songwriter, and speaker Rick Lee James of the Voices in My Head podcast to get his perspective on why Christians should make art. Let's listen. Yes, and Rick, welcome to uh, the Untold Podcast. We're glad to have you here. Normally, we don't do too many interviews. We've done a few in the past. But one of the things we like to ask artists such as yourself, um, and for my listeners who are not aware, uh, Rick is a professional singer, songwriter, a speaker, um, author, and worship leader. Uh, and so one of the th- you're an artist. Uh, in, in a word, you're an artist. And one of the things we like to ask artists on our show is, uh, why should Christians be making art? What is the point? What is the purpose? Why in the world do it? Shouldn't we just study theology and, um, um, you know, write, write textbooks. Um, not that I'm putting those things down. I like those too, but, but why, why should Christians be making art? Well, that's a, that's an excellent question. And I, I, I think that Christians indeed should be making art. I, I should say that first and foremost, um, you know, one of the things throughout history, uh, if you go even all the way back to the Old Testament prophets and before, uh, we have, you know, even before Christianity, we have people of faith making art in a sense. I mean, if, if you read any of the works of Walter Brueggemann, who uh, is, I, I'm a big fan of the works of Walter Brueggemann. I even had him on the podcast here a few episodes ago. Um, and he has done such amazing work in the Old Testament as far as describing uh, prophetic imagination and, and what it means to actually be prophetic. I think we have this uh, false sense of what 
the word prophet means today in our society, at least here in the West, because we always associate it with like seeing the future and foretelling almost like Nostradamus type things, you know, Mm -hmm. but, but true prophecy and and being truly like a prophetic speaker um, is really to do art. And, and, and let me give you an example of of what that means because Brueggemann will point out that, that the, the word that the Hebrews will use for prophet would be the word that the Greeks would use as poet and, and someone who actually is doing this artistic thing and, and they're seeing the world and envisioning it as though God really is in charge of this place, you know, and, and it really does take quite an active imagination sometimes, you know, and especially if you just look at some headlines today and go, wow, is God really in charge of this? Um, but, but prophets or, or even artists, I, I think I would lump them all together, truly. Um, if a prophet is, is speaking the words of God, um, if you take a piece of art, maybe people don't understand always what art is, but let me give you an example of something we may not always think of as art. Um, I've been thinking about, uh, the I Have a Dream, uh, speech. I guess you could almost call it a sermon by Martin Luther King Jr. And, even though, if you would talk to most African Americans about their experience today in the United States, they probably wouldn't say that that I have a dream speech has come true. Like they probably aren't going to say, uh, "Oh, I've I've totally experienced a society that's colorblind," you know? Right. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. And and yet, in that moment, in that speech. He is prophetically giving this message, or I would say artistically giving this message of a world as though God truly is in charge of it. And he's mm. and he's speaking these wonderful things into existence, and it's something that we aspire to and something that we believe the world looks like when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness and when it comes in its reign. And so I, I think that's a beautiful way to look at art. I think Christians need to be making art that speaks in that very prophetic way, speaking of this this world that's not in existence yet, but actually is here too in some ways where Jesus says the kingdom of God is among you. So so if we're talking about art, and sorry to go on and on with this, but no, I, that's I, fine. Really, I really love the question. I'm very passionate about it. Um, if you think of, of Jesus' words, you know, when he's when he's talking about the kingdom of God is among you, the kingdom of God is present. Um, I think that as artists, we have this grand opportunity as believers to actually begin proclaiming that and showing the world what that looks like. And, and I think maybe this is a reason that um, I, I, if, if, if I could do air quotes while I'm talking about this, when I, when I say like Christian movies, you know, like uh, whether it be like Fireproof or um, uh, Heaven is for Real or these, these other like Christian movies, again, parentheses Christian, I think they fall short of that task because they're only trying to reach such a specific market. Like they're not, they're not necessarily trying to reach the non-believer. They're basically kind of preaching to the choir and they're envisioning a world in some ways they're, they're kind of doing this, but they're kind of only um, imagining a world that looks like white middle-class America. If everybody was white middle-class American Christians, you know what I mean? Like I, I, I don't understand that probably is an overgeneralization. Um, but if you think in, in contrast to that, to like a film, say maybe like something that Terrence Malick makes, mm-hmm. that they're films for everybody. And I, and I've heard people in the world who, who though Terrence Malick is a believer and he makes these films that are almost sacramental in nature and that like, 
they don't always have this plot. Like you, you really have to sit down and kind of immerse yourself, you know, in like a film like he makes because they're they come at you with these visions and images that you don't even quite get in the beginning. You have to think about them, and they're kind of thing like a lot of people will sit through a Terrence Malick film. And they'll walk away and say, man, I hated that. <laughs> and, but but as they think about it, like if you think about the film, they'll they'll have these pieces, whether it's through the music or the images that are coming involved. Like there's there's a wonderful film he made called Tree of Life. Um, and, and in that film, you sort of have these contrasting views of who God is viewed through these parents who have lost a child. And and there's sort of this um, this contrast between the father who is almost very harsh and judgmental and the mother who is pure grace in the midst of it and and they're sort of talking about things that we believe about god in this film and when you walk away from the film after you've thought about it for a while you kind of come back to the film and go i kind of need to see that again like there's there's something that there's <laughs> yeah. something that popped open in my imagination so I, I think you can take things like that whether it be the art of of uh, a film or the art of a song or the art of you know an, an actual like painting um and, and i've actually heard it said before that that at times some of the worst forms of art um are, are the forms that are just utilitarian like you know like a thomas kincaid painting that it looks pretty but it's not changing the world you know what i mean <laughs> it's um it's it's not really representing um anything that's that's going to challenge you necessarily. It's, so, it's, uh, so then I guess my, the follow-up question to that would be, uh, from your view, uh, what, what is the goal of art? What's the purpose of doing it? Um, what should, it, what should its, um, uh, end game be? Well, I think, and every, I, gosh, that's a huge question, the, the end game, and there's a lot of, <laughs> I mean, in, in, in some, in some sense, yeah, I mean, in some sense, I guess that Kincaid painting is art too, because you're showing something beautiful, and it is a work of creativity. But I do, I think, like, for the Christian, especially if you're going to be an artist, I, I think you, you want to see, um, you, you do want to see uh, a way of speaking of a world that 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 is but is not yet i think what i've sort of already been talking about a little bit right and and a way of projecting that and i think you can do that like maybe if i just talked about music specifically which is more my expertise um i look at at somebody like uh like gungor like michael gungor and, and his band gungor and, and i think like man i wish i could write music like that because <laughs> it's so like imaginative and it's He's a Christian who's an artist, but it's not necessarily like you, – you can't classify that as like CCM top 40 like Christian radio music. Sure. Yeah, no. And you, and you don't always even walk away from the songs and think like, well, I, I completely understood what that was. You know, like it, it's sort of the things that you kind of have to let germinate in your mind and then kind of – they kind of give birth to other ways of – thought and thinking um and then there's there's people who like me who as much as i wish i was like a gunger or, or somebody like that um my music I, I actually feel like i have a calling specifically for the church you know like in a sense that congregationally like my new album is uh every song on there is is designed and written for the church to use like in a public worship setting and and so oh. i think i think there's i think there's room for both of those so i don't I don't ever try to present myself as an artist as though 
like I'm ever going to be that kind of artist that Gunger is. <laughs> but at the same time, like I, I feel like there's a different way to express art. And I think both are necessary. And in, in a sense, the kind of art I do, um, I think is proclaiming a world that already is, but is not yet too, right. you know, and I think is proclaiming who the father is. And I think there's a place for that. Um, that I, you know, we, if we take scriptures like, you know, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. I think when we present an unflinching view at who God is through like hymns and things, things I try to write, um, I think that can be very beneficial to those outside the church as well because we're actually presenting a real image, hopefully, of, of what we proclaim and what we believe. So when people hear it, they go, oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. And and maybe there's a clear line between what that is and what that isn't. But there's also room for that art that that needs to germinate and needs to like give birth to new thoughts and needs to make you think a lot more. And I, I like to think that both of our like styles are doing that just in different ways, I hope, you know. So, yeah, it seems like there's uh, certainly different audiences in mind, and that's actually one of the tensions we feel over at the Untold Podcast is who is our audience? Uh, initially, I mean, our, our tagline is engaging the culture's imagination through speculative fiction. Um, but one of our requirements is that uh, we have to have a, um, generally orthodox uh, Christians and little o orthodox. Um, mm -hmm. So you have to believe in some of the basics of uh, Christianity in order to have a story or a piece of art submitted to the show. Um, and so there's a tension there because a lot of the stories we feature, uh, they're, they're not explicitly Christian per se. They, they wouldn't make it into the uh, Christian uh, Booksellers Association. Uh, sure. They, they, they just wouldn't. Uh, some, some don't mention Christ. Um, some, uh, don't, um, don't really explicitly talk about God. And, um, and you look, but, but the Christians, the, the, the artists behind it are Christians. And so you ask, well, what, who's the, you know, who is the intended audience for this? And, uh, I think for us, the intended audience is, um, is everyone. Um, I think subsequently what happens though is, is a lot of Christians, um, are involved with the art and, uh, and so they tell their friends who a lot of them are Christians. And so we have a very little non-Christian, um, audience. We, right. we have some, um, so that's kind of like one of those tensions of, mm -hmm. of, yeah, we want this thing to kind of what, what you said, we're trying to be creative and, uh, um, uh, change people's thoughts or, or ch not maybe change, but challenge and open up new worlds and speak reality and, uh, give an image of the way things, uh, could be. And they already are. There's that, that tension between, uh, inaugurated eschatology, um, already and not yet. Yes. Jesus yeah. is reigning, but he will reign when he comes again in fullness. And, um, and so we, we, over at our podcast, we struggle with that. It sounds like, you know, here you are and you're, you're writing, uh, modern hymns, if I can put it that way. Um, and that certainly is for worship in the church, but, but that's all, it's also art and, uh, believers and non-believers can, can appreciate that equally. I, you, you watch some movies and, uh, they'll use, um, uh, how great thou art is in the background or, um, uh, you think of uh, the movie True Grit, and that movie was uh, the whole um, uh, the whole soundtrack was based around uh, leaning on the everlasting arms. Yeah, all throughout the film, just leaning on the everlasting arms. Okay, it was not a Christian film. The, the filmmakers were most certainly not Christian, um, but but even there, they recognize the beauty of this hymn. And um, uh, yeah, and the and the, sorry to interrupt. No, you, that's fine. The, Go ahead. The, I'm, the, I'm, 
The I'm Coen- from New York. We do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Cohen brothers, you know, are a perfect example of that. Of uh, people who aren't believers but are using art that that actually makes Christians think. And, and there's a new movie. I don't know if you saw the trailer that they they have another new film coming out, which has a lot more like explicitly Christian themes in it. And it mm. stars George Clooney, and it's he's he's playing like an actor from the 50s, and he's portraying this actor that in the film is is one of the centurions that's crucifying christ and um and i i wish i could remember what the name of the film was but the trailer was like wow i gotta see that film you know and uh so I, that was just a side note because you had mentioned yes, the, yeah. the, the true grit and and what a different film that is from the original john wayne you know oh, true most grit. certainly yes uh, most certainly talk about a reimagining and well, and I think about, you know, with, with your podcast, and I, I don't know if you've ever covered this story on your show, but um, Parker's Back by Flannery O'Connor is one that comes to mind. I don't know if you've read that short story. Yeah, I, I love Flannery O'Connor. If uh, one day when we can uh, afford the uh, the rights, right, oh. <laughs> we will produce a Flannery O'Connor uh, uh, story. She She's a good example of Christians doing art well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I... It's it's like how do you describe art? That would be you know I, we could probably talk about that one for a long time, but that's that's certainly such a a huge thing to talk about. I've I've heard people actually talk about like you know kitschy art, like just the the pretty stuff you hang in your home, but you know it's kind of harmless. But they've actually <laughs> they've actually talked about that and likened it. Like I've heard Christian artists like liken that to pornography. Um, yeah, I and, think that's and, I think that's too far. <laughs> well, I, I, it probably is too far. But the only reason that they they say that is they say because of um, of it not. Um, uh, and by the way, I would say that's probably extremely too far. <laughs> but yeah, but it's sort of they're making this point of like it's not presenting a, a world that um, is challenging or is real or is is. Uh, it's it's not authentic, I guess they would say, is is how it is, and that's how they used it. Actually, they said it's it, it's just as unreal as presenting like like pornography, and, and that's how I've heard it actually used. And I again, I think that's probably a a, a, a bridge too far, I would say. <laughs> but again, they're trying to to speak something. Even using that language is in some ways like an artistic way of like over expressing a point, you know, like yes, trying to make a point. certainly, certainly hyperbole. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we, and I think we struggle with that as Christians and even in parts of the Bible, because there's so many parts of, of the Bible that, you know, are probably hyperbole that we're taking as literal and, and the other way around too, <laughs> you know, and, and right. when you have all this, these, you know, uh, so many years of literature and the way that, that writing has changed even from the beginning. So like, how do you describe art in that? It's, that's a big, that's a big question to tackle. Yeah. One of the things uh, I've heard a few uh, artists and, and people who are interested in art say is uh, good art asks questions. Yeah. Uh, it's going to leave you asking more questions than it gives answers. Um, and uh, I, I think that's, I think that's true. I mean, you look at some of the Psalms, which, uh, in my humble but correct opinion, the Bible is uh, amongst, it's the greatest literature ever written. Um, the reason we don't see it that way is because, A, we're poor readers, and, and B, um, we've had it read to us poorly and presented to us poorly. Um, but you look at the Psalms, for instance, and they are songs of yeah. the heart. 
and uh, you look at something like uh, Psalm 13, and it doesn't end in roses. It doesn't end in um, uh, uh, jubilation. It, it's a challenge. God, where are you? Where are you in the midst of my pain and my anguish? Mm. Um, I'm going to trust in you, but it doesn't feel like you're doing anything, if yeah. I can paraphrase it. And um, and that's great. I, you know, I preached that uh, message or that text uh, a few years ago, and it was just... Um, uh, for so many people, it was so challenging. I had some people come. I, I said in it, you know, in, in your prayers, you can yell at God. He can take it. Sure. Um, yeah. He already knows that's how you feel. Yeah. Uh, so why don't you, you know, let it out and share with him what you're you're going through? And and uh, I had some people thank you so much. That was so helpful. Others came up and said, uh, oh, you, know, I just, you know, you can't do that. It's disrespectful to God. I'm like, well, are you thinking these things anyways? Yeah. Well, he's well, um he knows everything. That's right. Um, he sees so, you when you're sleeping. He right. knows when you're awake. <laughs> <laughs> so so it's um, but that's just one example. You, you go through all these um, uh, the stories or the uh, the narrative literature or the prophetic literature to circle back to where you were talking about here, and it is uh, completely challenging. It is questions. It's um, uh, hardships. You look at Hosea. I mean, that's just a series of questions of sure. the prophet asking God questions. Why in the world would you let this happen? Well, I've got an answer for that. Why would you let this happen? Well, I got an answer for that. Why would you let that happen? I got an answer for that. You're not going to like it, but oh. Uh, <laughs> and, well. and so you, you end, or, or even Job. Oh my goodness. I've heard, uh, non-believers, uh, atheistic, uh, speakers and thinkers and, uh, creative types. Uh, J. Michael Straczynski comes to mind. He, uh, he said Job is his favorite, um, book. Uh, ever, wow. and uh, Job, Job ends with more questions than it gives answers. Certainly, um, certainly not satisfying, um, challenging. Um, you know, okay, yeah. God gave everything back to Job, and uh, but you know, and more kids than he ever had. Okay, well, yeah. what about the kids he lost before? Did he not love that? Is this just? Yeah. You know, <laughs> are we talking about peanuts here? Um, yeah, and uh, he. And it's not like the the uh, the ancients were so, so unenlightened that they didn't even think to answer that question. They they yeah. left those questions hanging in the air, so that when you and me are fighting and facing difficulties and going through hardships, we read that um, the word of God, but it's art as well, and it's right. literature, well, and I, we can sit in that and go, huh. And 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 you're right. I think that's the power of of the way that that scripture was written and I, I think we lose that sometimes in modern Christianity but I you know from, from what I know of you know when I studied theology in, in in school and stuff and the way that they taught me to read the Bible is you know we we don't read scripture in a Jewish way because Jews uh, will look at scripture and it's to be wrestled with and mauled over and debated and argued about and you know it's sort of the idea that that they actually created these things so that we would have discussions and that we would in this very artistic way like come to it and have our minds be challenged and and cause us to think in new ways and you know it's funny you mentioned the psalms because in my book on the psalms that i wrote um i i said almost that exact same thing that you were talking about in your sermon um you know that that god is not scared of those questions that we bring i mean the psalms are a beautiful example of that but there are times when i think god much prefers an honest curse to a, a dishonest praise, you know, and, and, and there are certainly those times in the Psalms um, where 
the, the psalmist is questioning god are you even there are are you even listening to me right now you know the you know the evil doers are thriving and you know their bodies are sound their pockets are full and they scoff at me uh, what why is it that the the wicked are prospering and i am poor and you know that like psalm 72 you know when he he says i walked into the house of the lord and 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 there's this picture of he's so filled with bitterness you know at at the way he's seeing the wicked prosper um, and he and he's asking this question, but whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing I mm. desired more. I had nearly fallen away because of the way that the wicked are prospering around me. Um, but but then to come back in that beautiful picture of in the house of the Lord, whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on the earth I desire more. My flesh may fail, but you are the strength of my heart. Um, and that's that's some powerful stuff, you Amen. know, when, when yeah. you come to that. Um, so I'm I'm loving this conversation. Um, so we could <laughs> we could probably go on about it all day. But uh, we uh, just one other thing, if you don't mind. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I want to give a, an example of a of a Christian artist who does music and does it super well. And probably a lot of your listeners are familiar with Sufjan Stevens. Oh yeah. But his yeah. his his Illinois album uh, or Come On and Fill the Illinois was the <laughs> the name of it. Um he has a song on there about the the serial killer John Wayne Gacy Jr. Mm-hmm. Um and I don't know if you've heard that song or not, but it's it's just an absolutely haunting song because um it goes into the the song is actually telling the true life story of this man who became the serial killer, you know, and and it says his father was a drinker and his mother cried in bed. Uh, these are the lyrics I'm reading, actually, by the way. And and just to, if you don't mind, I'm just going to read them oh, all. It's yeah, a pretty, it's a pretty short song, and but it does this idea of like prophetically speaking something that makes our minds think. So it, it starts out telling the story of this guy. His father was a drinker and his mother cried in bed, folding John Wayne's T-shirts. When the swing set hit his head, the neighbors, they adored him for his humor and his conversation. Look underneath the house there, find a few, find the few living things rotting fast in their sleep of the dead. Twenty-seven people, even more. They were young boys with their cars, summer jobs. Oh my God, are you one of them? He dressed up like a clown for them with his face paint white and red. And on his best behavior in a dark room on the bed, he kissed them all. He killed 10,000 people with a sleight of his hand, running far, running fast to the dead. He took off all their clothes for them. He put a cloth on their lips, quiet hands, quiet kiss on the mouth. And then the last four sentences of the song, the last couple lines, are what really make this song truly like soul-searching. He says, And on my best behavior, I am really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets I have hid. And um, that that line about like, oh, yeah. it's not just it's just yeah. haunting, you know. And, well, because it's so disturbing. Yeah, yeah. And we're so disturbed, and it's very easy for us to uh, kind of in a uh, a gossipy way, uh, yeah. just look at uh, look at that and go, oh wow, that's horrible. And I'm, you know, we we kind of uh, judge them in our minds, and then when yeah. he turns that around and says, yeah, I'm the same way. I've got I've got things hidden under the floorboards. Oh, yeah. Uh, just it's just so challenging to the to the way that we think we don't want to admit that that we could possibly be like that serial killer and while i don't think sufyan is saying that i've actually killed people <laughs> no no and, it's uh, hyperbole <laughs> oh yeah yeah and and you know what but it's I, important yeah it's important hyperbole he's and, he's he's making a very good point that the uh this the sinfulness that rests in him also rests in me 
or, or as one of my friends says, why are we so uncertain that it's our enemy that has the heart problem and not us? You mm. know, yeah, <laughs> and, good, uh, good word. Yeah, Brent, uh, my friend Brandon Hancock, just to give credit to that quote, um, he he said that, and I, I thought it was it was a beautiful way of saying it. So. After this, Rick and I discussed a great Silver Age comic book, DC Comics Presents Number 67, Superman and Santa Claus. Head over to rickleyjames.com or find the direct link in the show notes to give a listen. We've also included a link to the Comixology version of the comic so you can join in on the fun. Well, this episode is quite a bit longer than our usual fare, so let's jump into it. Today's story was written by Frank B. Luke. Frank Luke grew up in Oklahoma, met his future wife at seminary in Missouri, and now resides in Iowa with her and their two boys who keep them very busy. They are associate pastors at a small church outside Knoxville, Iowa. While he earns a living as a web developer, she takes care of the house and boys. Alongside his nonfiction, sermons, church lessons, and answers at hermeneutics.se, he writes fantasy and science fiction to explore God's truth in fantastic ways. He finds such story theology connects with readers on both cognitive and emotional levels. Besides writing and programming, he enjoys Bible study, Hebrew, theology, church history, and doctrine. He is the author of The Buick Eight, Rebirths, and Seven Deadly Tales. You can find him online at frankluke.com and facebook.com backslash frank.b.luke. Head over to our show notes for all the direct links. Today's story originally appeared in Seven Deadly Sins, a short story collection of Faustian Bargains, a collection of interconnected stories by Frank B. Luke. So now, without further ado, The Untold Podcast presents Lou's Bar and Grill, Six is Wild, by Frank B. Luke. Greg slid his long form into the back seat of his friend's car. He was the last one picked up, and the four were now heading to a bar for their customary Friday night hangout. After a quick fist bump for each of his friends, he buckled in. It was already ten, but the bar scene in Buffalo really didn't start happening until almost eleven. The four men worked together. Jeff, the brown-haired driver, said to Greg, Philosophy question of the night is, If a genie appeared before you, offering your fondest wish, would you take it? We've all answered. Your turn. Greg shook his head. Not a chance. Even if he didn't spin my wish into something I wouldn't want, I believe God wants us to work for our dreams. Jeff shook his head. You're an idiot. You've spent years working hard, and where has it gotten you? Divorced before you're 32 and scraping by? I'd take it in a heartbeat. That is because you are lazy, my friend, said Nathan a shaven-head black man riding shotgun. Hey now, Jeff said. You said you'd take it too. But for different reasons. That's important. But Greg, let's say that the angel Gabriel, and you know for sure it's Gabriel, appeared and said God was pleased with you. God was going to reward you with your fondest wish. If you wanted it, would you take it? Didn't he make an offer like that to somebody in the Bible? Brad asked from his seat in the back. Greg said, Solomon. He fingered the cross he wore on a necklace. His mother had given it to him at his baptism. I still don't know. That sounds too much like an easy way out. 
You're the only one here who feels that way, Brad said. We'd all take the wish. Greg chuckled and brushed his hand through his sandy blonde hair. Peer pressure. What would you guys wish for? Brad bit his lip and looked away. I'm going to keep quiet on that one. It's very personal. Nathan spoke. Nothing greedy. Just enough money to pay off my cars and house. With the money we save on the payments, we could start a nice college fund for our little girl. Dude, she's three months old. Plenty of time for that, Jeff said. Mine isn't just for me. It's for every Detroit Lion fan in the good old USA. You'd use your wish for them to win the Super Bowl? Greg asked incredulously. He leaned forward until the shoulder strap stopped him. Brad laughed, closed his blue eyes. But you'd make bets on them with every bookie from here to Atlantic City. You wound me, Bradley. That hurts deep. Still true, Nathan said as Jeff turned onto the street their favorite bar was located on. Hey, it's closed, Greg said. What gives? Oh, I, I forgot to mention that, Brad said. The Long Branch had a fire in the kitchen this morning. I read about it online this evening. Well, that's great. What are we going to do now? Jeff asked. Keep driving. There's got to be another bar around here somewhere. Greg said. Jeff drove around for a few minutes and then turned down a narrow street he had never been down before. Where are you taking us? Brad asked. Don't know. But this way just feels right, like water running downhill. He changed the subject. So, Brad, how do you like the couple's counseling? Brad sighed. <sighs> it's a bacon cheeseburger at a bar mitzvah. That bad? Yeah, it sounds good, but it doesn't go over. I doubt we make it much longer. I'll keep you in my prayers, Greg said. Fat lot of good those prayers did you, Brad snapped. How much do you pay in child support a month? Easy now, Jeff said. No need to go there. He pointed ahead. Hey, I've never been to that bar. Anybody heard of Luz? Off to the right of the next intersection was an awning sticking out from the graffitied red brick wall. It simply read, Lou's Bar and Grill. A spilled trash can lay on its side next to the wall. Everyone said they hadn't. Shall we give it a try? Brad asked. I don't know, Greg said. That place looks like a dive. We're not exactly going there for our health, big dog, Nathan said. What's the worst that could happen? Long as it doesn't have strippers, I'm good with it. What have you got against strippers? Brad asked. A marriage, that's what, Nathan said with a snort. It's a happy one, and I want to keep it that way. I'm married, and that doesn't stop me. Yeah, and you're in marriage counseling, Greg said. Consider if they're linked. Might be true, Greg, but right now, don't be a party pooper. Jeff pulled into a spot outside the door and killed the engine. Greg thought the poorly lit bar was as dumpy on the inside as the outside. With a cough, he waved tobacco smoke away and followed his friends through the crowd. A couple of men stood playing the pinball machines, and a woman lined up the cue ball for her break. With a clack, the balls bounced around the table, and three solids sank into pockets. A man playing against her winced. There's a booth, Greg said. They took the seats. A tall, buxom brunette with a tray and apron came up to them almost immediately. 
Welcome to Lose. I haven't seen you guys before. Either you're new, or always show up on my night off. Like the other waitresses Greg could see, she wore a red button-up shirt with Lose emblazoned on the left breast pocket and skin-tight black jeans. Her jeans were tucked into black boots, which came up to just below her knees. I can't imagine me being that unlucky, Jeff said with a wink. I can, she said, popping a bubble. She pushed her short black hair back from her face. Nathan laughed loudest. Man, you are going to need some ice for that burn. She put the tray under one arm and pulled out a pad of paper from her apron pocket. What are you boys having? She fished a pencil from behind an ear. Cores from the tap all around, Brad said. You sure, sugar? The waitress said. We've got some great imports. Lou just got a case of mead that'll make you slap yourself silly. We'll stick with the cores, Greg said. But I'd like a little something extra if you don't mind. He sat up straight. Your name. She didn't wear a name tag. He winked. Sheila, she said and winked back. And that won't be going on your bill, babe. She gave him a winning smile. As she walked away, Brad elbowed Greg good-naturedly. Good job, Greg smiled. I didn't think she'd give it, but it was worth a shot. Jeff shook his head. Stop rubbing it in. Stop rubbing it in. Moments later, Sheila set a tray down on the edge of the table with a soft thump and put a mug in front of each one. And just flag me down if you need me. But no wolf whistles. The boss thinks they're trashy. She walked away as swiftly as she had appeared. Greg picked up his mug and a piece of paper fluttered down. What's this? He read it out loud. Sheila, 716-555-0616. Brad gave him a high five. Okay, now she's rubbing it in too, Jeff said. <sighs> Jeff finished his second glass and looked around the bar for Sheila. Where is she? Way over there, Greg said. Looks like a big group of frat boys, Brad said. You want to wait for her to get back here with those legs from heaven, or go to the bar yourself, Jeff? Nathan rolled his eyes. Jeff shook his head and stood up. I'll go. He took the empty mugs and set them on the bar. The bartender, a well-muscled and tall man with dark hair, strode over to him. Need a refill? Yep, the four cores. He looked for a name tag. Unlike the waitress, the bartender had one. Mo, coming right up. He turned his back to fill the glasses. Jeff looked at the television set over the bar. It was playing a poker tournament. The two players still in the hand had large piles of chips. One player called and laid down his cards. The other snorted and laid his down. The second player had been bluffing. I knew it, Jeff said as Mo put the four mugs down on the bar. You and your buddies play? On occasion, and always low stakes, just friendly games. Greg wasn't sure why this guy was asking. Sure, sure. But uh, we got a room in the back you guys can use if you want to play now. Not much happening out here tonight. He waved dismissively at the room. Sounds great. Greg perked up a little. Jeff jumped when Sheila put her tray down on the bar. Frat boys want another round of Heinekens and nachos, Mo. Guy in the end just turned 21 today. Give him a beer on me, then. His choice. I'll have Lilith take care of them, Sheila. That table of new guys wants the game room. Stay with them. Take care of anything they need. Full service. He put a box of cards and chips on the bar. She gave Jeff a winning smile and picked up the box. 
Let's go. Jeff waved the others over. Poker room in the back is ours for the night. The others smiled, and they all followed Sheila down the hall and into the back room. A round table in the middle of the room was covered with green felt. A low-hanging lamp hung over its center and cast the only light in the room. Four chairs sat around the table, and two more stood on each side of the door. Each man took a chair. Each man took a chair. Greg sat down next on Jeff's right and took the chips from Sheila. He made change as the others emptied their wallets of cash. Sheila bustled around the room, putting their mugs on coasters. Then she took a chair near the door. Hey, Sheila, Greg said. You have to stay in here with us? She nodded. Won't that cut into your tips for the night? She shook her head. Lou bumps the pay for our hours in this room to more than compensate. Special customers get this room and can expect full service. She smiled and messed with her short hair. I'll drink to that, Brad said across the table from Greg. How did we get to be special customers on our first night here? Greg said. Sheila shrugged. Never question good luck, boys. Just enjoy the room. You heard the lady, Jeff said. Deal the cards. Like always, quarter ante and dollar minimum for all games. Sounds good, Greg said and shuffled. The game this hand is seven card stud with nothing wild. He dealt three cards to each player. The last faced up. Jeff had a three. Brad, a seven, Nathan, a jack, and Greg, a six. Jeff, your bet with low card. He threw a dollar chip into the pot. Sheila, how about some buffalo wings? Extra spicy? Coming right up. She left the room. Brad's eyes followed her out the door. Brad, Greg said. Eyes on your cards, not the waitress, if you want to keep your money. I can't help it, Brad said, his eyes still watching her walk down the long hallway. She is just Fine. Something about her keeps me looking. I think being divorced would make you notice her more. Greg shrugged and raised his eyebrows. Yes, I have noticed that we have the best-looking waitress in the bar with us in this room. But I have priorities. Right now, we have a game going. Cliché, yes, but read them and weep. Greg said, laying down a straight. I cannot get a hand tonight, Brad said, throwing his cards down on the table. I might as well be sitting next to Sheila. You simply cannot bluff well, Nathan said. We can read you like a book. That's why you never win big when you have a good hand. The four men turned when there came a knock on the door. A short, bald man with big ears stepped into the room. He wore a red blazer, embroidered with Lou's on the pocket. Good evening, gentlemen, he bowed to them and looked over his glasses. Mo told me that we had new guests in the game room, and I wanted to welcome you to my establishment. I am Lou. He held a large cigar in his right hand. Brad laughed. You talk nice for running a dive like this. Oh, we'll never have Guy Ferrari here, but I think it has a homey appeal, he gestured to the table. May I join you? Greg scooted his chair to make a place for Lou. Lou pulled up the other chair from the wall and sat between Greg and Jeff. Let's skip the introductions. I ran into Sheila the last time she was out and she gave me your names. Jeff said, It would be Greg's deal, but you've slid into the next place. He handed the cards to Lou and quickly explained the ground rules for their betting. Ah, low stakes. A good way to keep from losing it all. He shuffled the cards between his well-groomed hands. 
The game is Texas Hold'em. Limit rules. Sixes will be wild. He dealt their private cards. Nathan finished his glass of beer. The next round of drinks will be on me, gentlemen, Lou said. Would you like something besides whatever you're already having? He snapped his fingers, and Sheila hurried to the table. Greg smiled. I'll stick with beer. I know how much of that I can handle. Lou smiled back and bowed his head. Very good, Gregory. And what of the rest of you, Bradley, Nathaniel, and Jeffrey? The others agreed to stick with beer. Sheila, bring us five beers and a large platter of Nachos Supreme. Also on me. You got it, boss. Sheila nodded and left. Greg noticed that Lou never took his eyes off the men at the table, even when shuffling and dealing. Greg couldn't put his finger on it, but something about Lou put him off. They played several hands with Lou. Money changed hands, but the stack of chips stayed fairly evenly distributed. Greg had dealt this current hand and called for five-card draw. He liked the simple games best, even though he could play the more complicated variants. Jeff had just folded, giving the hand to Nathan. Well, show the cards, Jeff said as Nathan raked in the chips. You didn't pay for that. But I don't know if you were bluffing, Jeff said. Like I said, you didn't pay for that. Greg collected the cards, handed the deck to Lou, and stood up. If we can wait just a minute, I'd appreciate it. I need to stretch my legs. I'll stay in the room. He walked over to Sheila's seat by the door. He whispered to her, Your boss has a pretty good read on the table. Lou had gone for the pot every time one of the men tried to bluff him. He's been around a lot of people over the years. She stood up to look him in the face. I bet. Oh? She raised an eyebrow at him. Running this bar, he must see new faces all the time. She smiled. He does. We have a good core of regulars, but it's always good to see new people. She reached out and squeezed his elbow. Gregory, Lou called. Please return to the table. Sheila, their glasses are empty. Right away, boss. She gave Greg's elbow one last squeeze before heading out the door. Lou shuffled. Seven-card stud. Follow the queen. He started to deal. Brad chuckled. I half expected you to say sixes were wild again. Oh? Lou looked intently at Brad. Yeah, you've called sixes wild the other three times you've dealt. Brad squirmed a little as Lou stared at him. Lou tossed another face-up card at Brad. Everyone sat up straighter when they saw it. There's the first queen, gentlemen. Whatever card follows will determine our wild card for this hand. Lou placed a card face down on the table and slid it over to Jeff. He took his hand from it. Will you do the honors, Jeffrey? Jeff turned over his new card. Six of spades. Even when you don't call for it, you get it, Brad said. Lady Luck smiles upon me, it seems, Lou said, puffing on his cigar. But don't worry, gentlemen. She is fickle. A couple of hours and many hands later, Greg raked in a small pot from Nathan's game of Omaha Hold'em. He had actually bluffed Lou this hand. The bar owner had looked very peeved after folding and seeing Greg's pair of fives, 
Greg reached out to Nathan for the deck. This was the way Greg liked to play. Everyone had won several hands, and the chip piles were fairly evenly distributed. Brad and Nathan were the lowest on chips, while he and Lou had the biggest piles. Even so, it was close. Lou called Sheila over. Sheila, these men look hungry again. Why don't you tell them what we have? First, I'd better ask how hungry you fellas are. She leaned over the table with her best smile. I'm quite hungry, Brad said. Something filling? Greg shook his head at Brad's unsubtle attempt to look down Sheila's neckline, but he knew that Brad thought he was being sneaky. Let's see. You guys have had the Nacho Supreme and the Buffalo Wings already. Also, in the filling category, we've got cheesy pigs in a blanket, grilled potato wedges, and the ever-popular beer-battered onion rings. I've never had cheesy pigs in a blanket, Nathan said. Are they good? Oh, I like them a lot, Sheila said. Let's try those, Jeff said. We'll wait until she gets back for the next hand, Lou said. Sheila left the room for less than a minute. When she returned, she carried a steaming tray of pigs in a blanket and cheese sauce. Mo had a table cancel an order, so here you go. Greg and the others dug into the food. The pigs were delicious. The chef had stuffed each weenie with caramelized onions. Greg shivered a little as Sheila ran her fingers over his shoulders when she passed on her way back to the seat next to the door. Without warning, Greg felt dizzy. Is there MSG in this? Almost certainly, Lou said. Is that a problem? Holding his hand over his mouth, Greg stumbled from his chair and ran for the door. Careful! The first stall is broken, Lou called after him. See that he's okay, Sheila. Greg heard the leggy brunette following. Jeff had known Greg for years and never seen him react so quickly and violently. He hoped his friend was okay. Lou looked at his watch. The night is progressing. How about raising the stakes in one last hand, gentlemen? Lou asked as he took the deck from Nathan. The cards made a whipping sound as he shuffled. Brad laughed. All in on this last hand? Winner take all? Mm, something like that. However, I'm more interested in playing for hopes and dreams than money. Lou smiled. What? Jeff asked. Lou's teeth looked sharp, maybe even pointed, and made Jeff shudder. We play for wishes this hand. Each of you wants something, very much. I can provide those aspirations as my terms in this wager. Jeff leaned forward. How can you do that? Lou removed his glasses and set them on the table. He set the deck of cards down and folded his hands. His skin turned red and horns grew from his forehead. The cigar in his mouth almost made him look comical, but Lou's demeanor showed the gravity of his offer. Jeff leaned back with a shudder. That demonstration couldn't have been faked. You look like the devil! Oh boy, what have we gotten into? You want us to bet our souls? Nathan asked, rising slightly from his chair as if to bolt. Not at all. I will take what is most important to you should you lose. 
You don't have to say what it is aloud, but as complimentary stakes, I will offer you your fondest dreams. Again, don't speak them, as that would be embarrassing for some. He looked pointedly at Brad. I don't know, Jeff said. Tell you what, if any of you win the hand, I'll grant the wishes of all. If I win, you all lose what you hold most dear, tangible or intangible. The three friends looked at one another. Pretty good odds, Nathan said. If only one of us has to beat him. Brad nodded at Jeff. He plays okay, but not stellar. Surely one of us can do this. We're in, Lou, Jeff said. A paper appeared in front of each of them. Jeff read his and saw it contained both what he held most dear and what he stood to gain. You need written contracts? No, Jeffrey. A handshake will work just fine for a gentleman's wager such as this. But appearances matter, for symbolism's sake. Throw those papers into the pot to accept the terms. They did so. And Lou stood and shook the hand of each man. Jeff noted how his skin was warm, almost hot to the touch. Lou shuffled the cards. The game is five cards stud, aces high, and our wild card will be... Wait, Nathan said. Not a six. Anything but sixes wild. Lou put the cards down and took his cigar from his mouth. Why, Nathaniel, six is my lucky number. I always pick six. Do you have another suggestion? How about we do it by a draw? You fan the cards, and whatever card I draw shows the rank of the wild card. Fair enough. Lou spread the deck in the middle of the table with one deft movement. Hand shaking and eyes closed, Nathan reached out and pulled a card from the middle. He turned it over with his eyes still closed. Nathan, you unlucky son of a gun. Jeff said with a sigh. Brad whimpered. I pulled the six, didn't I? He opened his eyes to see the six of hearts lying beside his chips. The three men shuddered, just like the hand of Follow the Queen. And thus, sixes are wild, gentlemen, Lou said with a smile. He took the card from the felt, mixed it back into the middle of the deck, shuffled twice more, and dealt. Greg stumbled out of the men's room several minutes later. He still felt funny, even though he had just emptied his stomach. Sheila was waiting for him in the hallway with a worried look on her face. You look awful, babe. She took his arm and led him to a chair in the hallway. Just rest for a minute. Don't worry about the game. <sighs> that sounds like a great idea. Greg looked at his watch as he slid into the chair. It was 1.10. Need to call your wife? Sheila took the chair next to him and put her arm around him. He leaned against her shoulder and shook his head. Not married anymore. Her shoulder was comfortable. Girlfriend? There was a slight, inquisitive rise in her voice now. Not one, Greg smiled. It sounded like this woman might be interested in him. He could definitely reciprocate. He had asked for her number, but he supposed she got hit on by married men as well as single. He assumed she might flirt for a tip, but draw the line at seeing a married man socially. Well, just rest easy, babe. Sheila will take good care of you. She stroked his hair and hummed 
as he closed his eyes. Surely it wouldn't hurt to rest his eyes a few minutes before going back into the game. Greg felt good leaning against her. Jeff looked at his cards. He had two aces, a six, and a nine showing. Another nine for his whole card gave him a full house. He beat Lou's showing three kings, but wasn't sure about that whole card. Two of Lou's kings were wild sixes. I see you. Jeff tossed more chips from his shrinking pile into the pot. Lou had started the hand with slightly more chips than he did. Their host could win the hand simply by betting them out. Luckily, Brad had more chips than Lou even now. From the corner of his eye, Jeff saw Brad checking his whole card again. If he couldn't remember that card for more than a few seconds at a time, it was no wonder he couldn't play well. Freeze, Bradley, Lou said in his cultured accent. Open your hand, the one you just used to check your whole card. Brad sighed and opened his hand. Jeff saw he was palming a five. Brad! Lou reached over and flipped Brad's whole card. It was an ace. I wondered where that ace had gone. You count cards in poker? Nathan asked. Nathaniel? I count cards in every game where it gives an advantage. Simply remembering which cards have been seen allows me to calculate the odds better. He turned to Brad. Bradley, that cheating will eliminate you from the hand. I ought to call your bet a loss right here, but I'm feeling generous tonight. Can I give my chips to the others? Lou snarled. Not a chance. Nathaniel, the bet is to you at $25. Nathan bit his lip. I'm all in. He tossed his last $20 worth of chips into the pile. We could have saved us all a lot of trouble by just going all in the first round. Oh, posh. Where would be the fun in that, Nathaniel? Lou said. He tossed some chips into the pile. It's just the two of us now, Jeffrey. Another ten to you. Trembling, he added $10 worth of chips to the pot. Jeff said, I call. He turned over his whole card to show three aces and a pair of nines. A full house. What do you have? Lou smiled maliciously. Four kings. He turned over the last six. The men gasped. That's almost impossible. Nathan said. The odds of having the last six must have been a million to one. But those odds turn up nine times out of ten, Nathaniel. He rose from the chair and reverted to human form. If you will adjourn to the main room, we can discuss terms of delivery. Greg startled to wakefulness. He pushed himself up from the chair and looked around. What time is it? He pulled his sleeve up so he could see his watch. 1.45. The little nap had done him good. Just you and your friends left in the bar now, babe. Sheila stood up behind him and put one arm around his waist. Sounds like the game wrapped up several minutes ago, too. I think your pals lost it all. I didn't wake you because you needed the sleep. I guess I'm paying for tonight. Won't be the first time. 
He slipped his arm around her slender waist, and they went back into the bar's serving room like that. Lou and Mo stood with their arms crossed in front of the door. Now, a deal is a deal, Lou said. I won the final hand, so you all lose the stakes. The agreement was quite clear, Jeffrey. Jeff, Brad, and Nathan stood visibly shaking at the bar. You can't do this, Jeffrey said. Oh, but I can, Jeffrey, the owner said. If you don't intend to honor a bet, don't make it. That's how I got to be where I am today. I honor my bets. Letting go of Sheila, Greg stepped between them. What bet? I've never known Jeff to welsh on a bet, even when he had to streak through our frat party with the Tri-Delts. Sheila walked over to stand next to Mo. That only happened once, Jeff said quietly. We made a wager while you were out of the room, Gregory. Lou puffed on his cigar. If any of them won the hand, I would give all of them what they most desire. However, if they all lost, I would take what each holds most dear. Jeff throws keys on the table. Lou and his employees chuckle. Oh no, not the car. I don't usually go for worldly possessions. Greg squinted. Worldly possessions? That's an odd way to put it. Who are you? Brad said, he's the devil, Greg. And the others here? Greg said, stepping back and looking at Mo and Sheila. He trembled a little. It sounded off, but Brad wouldn't lie about that, even as a joke. The heat rose, and the lights in the bar dimmed as Lou, Mo, and Sheila stretched, turned red, and grew. Sheila had wings, yellow eyes, and small horns. Mo became even taller and bulkier. A red tail whipped behind him. Lou was taller, still thin, and held a pitchfork. He also had dark hair and a pointed goatee. I thought the pitchfork was added later, Greg said. Lou rolled his eyes. As if I care. As long as the clients recognize me, I'm happy. I don't guess you would care to wager on their behalf. You'd let me have a chance to get their souls back for them? Sheila and Mo guffawed. Lou looked at them sternly until they stopped. <sighs> Everyone assumes I take souls every contract. I never said that. These three don't care one whit for their souls. What'd you take instead? I'm taking what matters most to them. For instance... Nathaniel has a lovely daughter. She'll die of SIDS tomorrow night. As the friends protested, Lou held up his hand. Don't worry, she's very young and will be going to that other place. I can't touch such innocence. Greg swallowed. Come on, man, you have to help my girl, Nathan said. Terrible choice you face, isn't it, Gregory? Lou's toothy smile was ugly and predatory. Wagering with me is surely a heinous sin, but so is doing nothing and, by that inaction, permitting me to take the girl. Now, Brad losing his car when a tree falls on it and the Lions losing their Super Bowl berth in a heartbreaking last play in the postseason wouldn't matter to you or you-know-who, but thanks to Nathaniel, I have you on the horns of a dilemma. Jeffrey, however, won't remember this bet and will lose his life savings with a bookie, but that, too, is a consequence of his choice. Greg looked down. 
I don't seem to have a choice. Inaction is surely worse than a gamble with you. I'll throw a little sweetener in the pot. If you win, you get your heart's desire. Reconciliation with Leah. I can give you the marriage you've always wanted. Greg pondered. It would be great if he and Leah could work things out, but was that possible? Before he could say anything, Lou continued. I can even make it better. Leah can become everything you ever wanted in a wife. What you want is within your grasp. Greg blinked. Everything he wanted was free for the taking. But it wasn't really free. Something clicked in his mind. No. I messed up my life by just hoping it would get better. Wishing won't make it better, and I don't like who I would have to thank. Lou stiffened. Very well, then. You may win nothing. However, you must still offer stakes. When you lose, I will take what matters most to you. What game would you like, Gregory? As the challenged, you may choose the contest. Think carefully and choose wisely. The three shifted back to their human forms. However, the lights and heat stayed the same. Any game of skill, you've got centuries on me for practice, he said. Millennia, actually, at least for the basics, Lou said. Then it might as well be a game of luck. Five card draw, one hand. He turned to go back to the gaming room. Sheila moved in front of the door, standing directly between him and the door. Their noses almost touched. Oh no, babe. The final bet will be out here. No need to go back in there. Lou has another deck. Greg unbuttoned the top button of his shirt as the room grew intolerably hot. As his hand brushed the cross on the chain under his shirt, the room cooled off. Startled, he let go, and the heat returned. He gripped the cross and stared at Sheila. She hadn't moved, but he now saw her in her demoness shape. When he let go again, he saw her as a physically attractive woman. However, her beauty held no sway over him now. He yanked the necklace off so it would always be in his hand. Mo and Lou looked demonic again when he glanced at them. That you don't want me to go in there is reason enough to go in. We'll use the deck on the gaming table. He pushed the demoness to the side and stepped into the room. His friends followed along with the three from the bar. Let's do this quickly, Lou said, stepping over the table to pick up the cards. Wait, Greg said, looking at the table quizzically. Did you guys change chairs while I was in the bathroom? No, Brad said. Seats stayed the same. Then Lou lost big time. Greg pointed to Lou's hand of cards. Sixes were wild, Greg. Four kings beat my full house. Nothing changes that. He did something to the cards, Jeff. As I see it, Lou has a hand of king high with no wild cards. Greg tapped Lou's cards on the table. They shimmered and changed into cards of different ranks and suits. Whoa, Brad said. The cards changed. Lou cheated us? Lou laughed. You expected fair play from the devil? Sheila and Mo stood to either side of him. Tell you what, you won, so I'll grant your wishes. Yours too, Gregory. That's more like it, Nathan said, rubbing his hands together. Greg elbowed Nathan in the ribs. Hush! 
You saw how he cheated us at the game. He'll give you exactly what you wish for, but in a way that you won't like. And do you really want to have to thank him? Leave with everything intact. The three looked at one another and then at Greg. You're right, Nathan said. Let's just get out of here. Lou's face twisted into a snarl. Then get out and don't come back. No worries on that end, Brad said, running out the door in front of the others. Greg was right behind him as Brad ran into the falling awning. Greg and the others couldn't stop themselves in time and slammed into Brad. The awning fell while we were in there? Nathan said, pulling himself from the ripped and faded cloth. That's not what happened, Greg said. Look behind us. The door to lose had been boarded up for years. No lights shone from the inside, and the window was broken. that was our story. I hope you liked it. There is a nice atmosphere to this story. The protagonists blend together in a similar way that the long line of kings blend together in the biblical books of Kings and Chronicles. And that's kind of the point. They're all basically the same average Joe limping along trying to survive, except for one thing. One thing makes a difference and it cuts through the haze. A broken down, imperfect but very much present faith makes all the difference before we go remember that this podcast is part of the christian geek central network at christiangeekcentral.com i also want to mention the second volume of the crossover alliance anthology is now available i have two of my short stories featured in this collection so be sure to check it out Please remember to join our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, blog about us, leave us positive reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find us, and tell your friends. Until next time, I'm Nathan James Norman, reminding you, as long as the clients recognize me, I'm happy. 